in this episode. Do you think that um, the fact that many people have gone to online classes is uh, an omen for the way things might be headed in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's ominous for higher education um, as it's currently um, structured. I think higher education is heading for an awful lot of disruption. And the disruption is not caused by the coronavirus. First and foremost, the disruption is caused by the internet. So that is, as it were, if you, to do the analogy of, of burning down a barn, you need two things. You need, you need the barn to be dry and you need a spark. And uh, the internet has, has dried out the barn and the coronavirus may be the spark. So I, I've wondered about those lockdowns, whether it's right to interpret them as some people are being act, asked to sacrifice themselves, be very unselfish for the sake of other people, particularly old people or people with pre-existing conditions who are especially vulnerable. Um, and, and I wonder if, if this is, because this is a universal lockdown, it's not just, uh, and it's not voluntary either. It's not, you can choose to not go to work or put a temporary hold on your business, but we're going to force you to under, under mandate of law, you're forced to stay at home. And, you know, this has caused many people to lose their jobs. Unemployment is at a record high. Um, and it's, and it's universal. It's not just if you're in a certain category who's vulnerable. So I'm wondering if, if some people are being sacrificed for the sake of other people and whether this is a form of kind of imposing a morality of sacrifice or of altruism of living for the sake of others. And, um, a more, is it imposing anti-selfishness in a way? Do you have any thoughts on any of that? Quality of life is another consideration. So even if uh, well, a universal lockdown isn't killing more people than it's saving, even, even if it's saving more than it's killing, um, you might still say it's not worth it because of the, the cost to quality of life. And I think that's a real consideration. I mean, I think like the point that I made earlier, if, if you are somebody who's vulnerable, um, there's a good chance you're... Um, a lot of the people who are vulnerable are, are close to the end of life. Um, and they may, they may not want to spend the last years that they have in lockdown, the last months that they have in lockdown. They may want to be out and about enjoying what little time they have left. So, and they, they may be willing to take a risk that they'll lose it, that they'll lose that time, rather than spend it in, uh, cooked up in, in what's effectively house arrest. I think that's a serious point. Welcome to another episode of the Selfishness Project, where we explore the idea of selfishness. Today, I am here again with Professor Bernard Molyneux, a philosophy professor at the University of California at Davis. I spoke with him a few months ago in episode 20 about egoism and he ended up 
using that episode in his introduction to philosophy class at UC Davis. And since that time, uh, there's been this whole uh, coronavirus pandemic. So I thought it'd be interesting to have him on again and discuss that issue and get his take on it. As well as some other issues, perhaps, but uh, certainly I would want to discuss all that's or some of what's been going on with the whole coronavirus issue. So, uh, Bernard, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Dan. All right, you're welcome. So, um, let's see. Since you're in higher education, uh, maybe maybe we'll start with that. A lot of uh, places have closed, schools have closed, universities have closed, and they've moved a lot of uh, their their offerings online. And I'm wondering if how this has affected you. First of all, I mean, have, did you were you teaching a class while the pandemic was going on? Did you move anything online? Um, so how has it affected you? And then also thinking forward to the future. Do you have any thoughts about how this might affect the shape of higher education? Um, so yeah, it, it did affect me. I was teaching a class, um, a big class. I was teaching a couple of classes, but I was teaching a very big class uh, at the time that this really started to come in. I started to get some emails from students who were concerned about um, meeting in big lecture halls full of people. And this was fairly early on before anyone had a real idea what this was going to be. Um, so people, the, the term lockdown hadn't entered the national vocabulary. Um, but after a couple of classes, I started to feel a little bit sick, just maybe just coincidentally. But um, I remember going through this debate in my head about whether or not I should go in. And so you have this thought where you, you kind of, well, you don't really want to go in and you feel when you feel a little bit sick, you, you feel like taking the day off, but there's always this kind of balancing act against your, your sense of duty where you feel like, wow, is it really bad enough that you should take the day off or should you go in and, and um, teach the classes? And it occurred to me that students were probably thinking the same thing. Um, and that when you've got a number of people who are all thinking that at a time when certain people are going to be risk averse and they're, they're going to they're gonna miss the class and certain people are going to be more... Um, uh, stoical, I suppose, uh, or um, I don't want to say risk-seeking, but the, the more risk-resilient, uh, the, the less concerned with risk. Um, and I, I ended up um, cancelling the class and cancelling all further classes and moving to video lectures. And it was, at the time that I did that, I thought that I was being, I, people might judge me as, as overreacting or something. And, but it was just a judgment call. And then within a week, everyone was doing it. Um, so it was, it, the, the, the speed at which things escalated from uh, no one really had this on their radar to uh, everybody is closing everything was, was quite shocking. Um, so it, it has affected me. Um, this quarter is, uh, I don't have any teaching duties this quarter, so I'm just on research and administration this quarter. So uh, this is all stuff that can be done from home. Um, but yeah, that's the answer to that question, yeah. Uh, did, I, I forget, did you have a second question? Well, just one thing about the, the timeline. So when did you uh, first start canceling your classes, roughly? 
Um, in, in terms of the, the absolute date now, I, I would struggle. I'd have to look at a calendar. Uh, but it was maybe a, a couple of weeks from the end of uh, last quarter. Um, so I think I ended up doing about two weeks worth of lectures just by video. Um, and so it was, it was about a, a week before a, an awful lot of the voluntary lockdowns. It was kind of a cascade of voluntary lockdowns that weren't um, happening because of, of, of the government uh, announcing rules or state, local or, or national government but just because people had decided that it was prudent and those all happened in, um, in um, quick succession about a week after I did it. So, so you know, the narcissistic part of my mind makes me think, oh, I got this whole thing going. I, I right. my classes and uh, the idea spread that this is what you should do. Mm -hmm. I was an early adopter. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are that's a strange thing because I, I, have, I have very mixed feelings about doing it. I have very mixed feelings about the efficacy of it. My, my logic at the time was that um, it was justified on whether or not the pandemic itself, whether or not the, the, the virus itself was going to be highly contagious, uh, very deadly or not. Um, because there was at least that idea going around that it, that it was both of those things. And that meant that uh, if I was requiring people to come to class, then people who were in the intersection of being risk averse and having maybe a pre-existing condition like asthma, so they were very justified in being risk averse. Um, I, I felt that it might be discriminating against them not to have video lectures because they wanted to take more precautions. And um, so I thought, well, if I want to do the video uh, lectures anyway to kind of cover for people who feel like they, they don't want to take the risk, I might as well just make the whole class um, a video class from, for the remainder of the, the quarter. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was around early March that you did that. Cause I think the official lockdowns were roughly mid-March. Uh, so if you did it a week or two before that, I think maybe around early March. Okay. So so the other part of my question was um, the future of higher education. Like, do you think that um, the fact that many people have gone to online classes is uh, an omen for the way things might be headed in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's ominous for higher education um, as it's currently um, structured. I think, Higher education is heading for an awful lot of disruption. And the disruption is not caused by the coronavirus. First and foremost, the disruption is caused by the internet. So that is, as it were, if you, to do the analogy of, of burning down a barn, you need two things. You need, you need the barn to be dry and you need a spark. And uh, the internet has, has dried out the barn and the coronavirus may be the spark. So what do I mean by that? So, well, one way that I like to, to put it is this, when I was a freshman undergrad um, at the University of Manchester, I, I was amazed at what I saw when I got to college. I could see the value added immediately that I, that I arrived on campus. Um, so not only did I have these, these lecturers, these professors uh, speaking about things that I was very interested in, but I'd never really been able to have many conversations with many people about before. Um, but there was this huge library on campus, the um, 
for John Ryland's library. And it just seemed to be this um, enormous repository of knowledge to me. Uh, all of these aisles filled with books and the books on seem to cover the uh, every subtopic of every subtopic. Uh, no detail was too minute. And I, I remember feeling this palpable sense of hunger. I really wanted to read all of those books. I really wanted to know what was in all of them. Um, and then, of course, there were, there were talks, there were colloquia. And professors would come from around the country and would give talks. And I went to them. And again, this was something that I, that I uh, couldn't have got anywhere else. I've, I've just come from a town, a little town, where my local library uh, has one philosophy book filed under psychology um you know and the rest of it is kind of stephen king and daniel Steele, and, and those, those are the rest of the books and there's some non-fiction books, but you, but you get the idea they're all kind of pop books mostly pop books and so to, to go from that to the john ryan's library was was quite something now fast forward um uh, to the present day and the student who comes to campus now is not overawed by the library on campus why not because there's far more information at their fingertips on their phone. Um, there's a universe of information on the internet that dwarfs um, in any university library. Um, they're not overawed by the professors. Why not? They, they can watch professors on YouTube. They can watch whole lecture series on YouTube. They can watch whole courses on YouTube. So it seems like the, the amount of value added by the campus itself now is not what it was. Uh, uh oh, um, is that gonna is that gonna interfere too much with the, the call? I heard a little something, but it didn't sound too bad. Okay. So, um, so there's a question now about value added. Um, given how much a student can get at home on the internet uh, for virtually no cost. Um, what is the university system and what is a, a campus-based university system uh, adding in terms of value uh, to the student's education? Now, of course, um, educating undergraduates is not the only mission of the university. There's also research. Uh, so that's a distinct question. But at least outside of STEM, an awful lot of the economics of the university are based upon teaching undergraduates. And if, teaching, if undergraduates aren't getting the same value for money, then one wonders what happens next. Um, it seems that there's been a disruption in the underlying economics, which has not yet been felt fully in uh, the way we do business in um, American universities. But, um, but I think that that's coming. Now the coronavirus itself, like I said, well, this is kind of a, a, a spark event. It's an event that could cause things to escalate rapidly. So you have um, the obvious fact that if we're gonna teach our classes online for an extended period of time, people are gonna start getting used to it and people are increasingly gonna ask, well, why are we paying all of this money to be on campus? Why is my son or daughter paying uh, all of these dormitory fees? Um, why can't she live at home and uh, study online? You know, what is, what is the need to, um, to bring students to campus. And that question is gonna to have to be answered if the university system as it stands is, 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 going, is going to justify um, the way that it does business. And, the, and, and if it can't answer that question satisfactorily, then um, there are gonna to have to be changes. 
Now, having said that, I, I, I don't know exactly how this is all going to shake out, but um, it strikes me that disruption is coming. Um, I feel this a little bit like when I look at the university systems, it stands, I feel like I'm looking at Kodak or Blockbuster Video. There's something about, uh, it, it feels as if it's, um, uh, it's behind the times. Uh, things have moved on and it hasn't. And if it doesn't find a way to adapt, then it's, uh, it's in danger of sinking. I like the analogy to uh, a barn being dry and then having a spark. That's, that was pretty vivid. Um, so I, I'm, I'm interested in how this, if you want to say anything about this, how this might affect you personally. Like, have you thought, oh, well, maybe if academia, at least the current model, is this a sinking ship of sorts? And maybe I should get off it now. Uh, I shouldn't wait till the last minute. Maybe I should find something else to do. I mean, are, are they going to be laying off a lot of professors because you know demand for uh, actually in-person uh, teaching is going to go down? So they won't. Maybe they won't need as many professors. They can do more of the classes online and have one one professor teaching more students. Um, have you thought about maybe? Maybe are you going to stick with the university, or do you want to maybe consider some other options? So, okay, well, well, before we get to me personally, let me just address the question of um, are they going to lay off professors? Um, so there's so many threads to this that it's it's difficult to to get a clear picture. Um, one way of simplifying the question is to ask, well, what is what is the service that the university pro provides? What is the education service that it provides? And you can break that down very roughly into two halves. Um, the first half is instruction, the second half is grading. So we give out knowledge and then we test the knowledge that the student has absorbed and, it, and we certificate it, we, we accredit it. Now, the first of those functions, it seems, can be taken over by the internet very cheaply indeed um one of the concerns here is is that well look if you've got uh, a professor at harvard who in effect can pass on the the knowledge of a particular course to an unlimited number of students around the world be it millions or billions um why do we need two professors teaching that course why do we need another professor at princeton why do we need another one at Yale? Why do we need a bunch of them at the University of California? So that's the, that's one quite challenging question. And um, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that. Except by changing the topic to the second function. Um, so the second function is grading and you might say, well, look, okay, one professor at Harvard can, uh, can broadcast that information to an unlimited number of people, but that professor can't grade an unlimited number of people, can't assess an unlimited number of people to make sure they've absorbed the information. Um, so it seems like the initial defense of the existence of so many professors um, with respect to the, the, the educational function, I'm not talking about research at the moment. So the justification of having so many professors to teach undergraduates it's probably going to shift to, well, we need them for grading. 
there's a number of problems with that argument. So the first one is, in an awful lot of American universities, especially research universities, the professors don't do the grading. The grading is done by TAs, it's done by teaching assistants. So it's not clear that we do need the professors anymore. We have a professor at Harvard to teach all, all the courses. We may still need an army of TAs across the country and across the world uh, to do the grading, but we may not need the professors themselves. Um, the second problem is that an awful lot of grading these days is done automatically, and more could probably be done automatically. So you can basically get computers to do the grading. Now, right now, that's limited. Computers are very good at grading multiple choice exams. They're very good at grading other exercises that are kind of uh, answering from a drop-down menu or doing a kind of matching exercises and things like that. Um, maybe even, even drawing graphs on sheets in mathematics class, you can do that with a computer quite well. Uh, but writing a paper is not something, or I should say assessing the paper, is not something that can easily be done right now using uh, a computer. So one question is, well, is, will AI come in and take over that function as well? And how many years are we away from that? And I suspect that we're quite a long way away from that. So I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, but a different challenge comes from um, industry. So um, a number of companies, including Google, run their own tests. They give you a test to see whether you're, you're good enough to work for their company, whether you have the kinds of skills that they need. It may, it may one possible way this goes is that um, that could become widespread with companies just generally giving their own in-house tests. And a second way that it could go, which is closely related to this, is that specialist companies could sprout up that uh, specialize in providing tests for your company that you then give to employees to see whether they've got the skills. And then getting the skills is just something that the prospective employee does on their own, just by cruising the internet and tips, how do I get a job at this place, what do I need to learn, what's the test like, are there any test materials I can get. In fact, the companies that specialize in giving the tests for the companies can also, at the other end, be selling test preparation materials. So there's, there's a business ready to go, really, um, taking over all of that stuff from universities. And when that happens, I think the damage to the universities could be severe and um, fatal. Uh, now I said there's, there's so many interlocking threads here that you know that's just that's just a taster. Um, so one one thing you might want to do next is, is start asking well is there a distinction between STEM and non-STEM disciplines when it comes to how well they're gonna they're gonna weather the coming storm. And I think there is a difference. Um, so I could talk about that, um, or I, I could take a break for a moment and let you in on. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, let's do at least a little bit on the uh, STEM versus non-STEM. So it's not a clean divide. Um, so some STEM disciplines can be learned quite well by a person sitting in front of a computer at home. Uh, the, the biggest exemplar of, of that is computer science, programming. You can teach yourself to program. You don't need to go to university to do that. You have everything you need uh, if you've got a computer. Um, now, 
but on the other hand, suppose that I'm, I, I want to study particle physics and I want to, at a PhD level, and I want to, uh, I need, in order to do my research, I need access to some kind of particle collider, uh, some kind of huge machine. Um, obviously, that's not something I can just buy on Amazon and have it delivered. Uh, I need to go to a place where they have that. Now, right now, you, the system is you get your PhD by going to a research university that has a, an appropriate specialization in physics and has some huge collider, and you can do that kind of research. Having said that, there's a lot of ways to get a PhD without having access to that machine. You can still talk about the results of that machine, and you can still do theoretical work on the results of that machine without having access to it yourself. You just have to read the papers of the people who do have access. But nevertheless, you might argue, okay, were there were there's a significant hardware requirement for getting the education that you need, uh, the university is still going to be there. And I think, at the very least, that is a good argument that certain STEM disciplines will be uh, better able to weather the storm than um, most non-STEM disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, again, the question is, well, are these things that industry can take over? Um, is training people to PhD level something that uh, the private sector would be willing to do? Uh, would the private sector be willing to have um, something like a huge particle collider in order to um, train up its students? My, my instinct is with something like a particle collider, probably not. Um, because I, maybe I just don't know enough physics. Uh, it seems quite likely, but I'm not completely sure what the economic payoff would be of um, getting people to understand pretty abstruse microphysics. Um, but I don't know. The other, the other possibility is um, some of that education could be taken over by the military. Um, so the, there are, there are still threats, but I think the threats are not as pronounced and not as imminent with certain STEM disciplines as they are with certain other disciplines. Uh, but with, with respect to, you know, the humanities, philosophy, maybe some of the social sciences. Um, uh, I think there's reason to be concerned if, if you're working in the academy right now. Yeah, I was just wondering about philosophy since, you know, both of us are in that field. Could we have done our entire PhDs online? I mean, there was certainly nothing like a collider that we needed. It was just yeah. reading articles each week, reading books, going to uh, seminars, uh, colloquia. It seems like basically everything except the social functions, like going out to dinner after the colloquia, could be yeah. done. I mean, for me, certainly the social part of it should not be underestimated. I, I, what I mean is um, not the social, you know, not drinking and, and, and having a good time. By social, I simply mean being in an environment where there are a lot of other people who specialize in this and having conversations every day. I found that extremely valuable. Um, I would say so much of my education came from just being in that environment. And they're just the natural ways that conversations would start. And you would discuss the material at a, at a very high level in, in what was kind of a challenging and quasi-competitive situation. Uh, because you are in a situation where you, you don't want to say something you know, really dumb. 
and make a fool of yourself. So there's there's a kind of a, you're kind of having your feet held to the fire every time you do it. And yeah, I, I got an immense amount from that. Now, not every PhD student learns in that way um, or has the same experience, but I had that experience. Um, and I don't know what, what you would say here, but you had a huge amount of interaction with me. We had a lot of conversations. And, um, and so I expect that that probably played a big role in your PhD. So, and I do wonder whether or not this would happen. So it, it can happen in principle online. Um, you know, we can, we, we can do what we're doing right now. But it, I'm not sure that it would happen organically uh, if you moved the whole system to, a, to a remote learning. Because you have to set up an appointment. You know, there's got to be a time when you Zoom. Um, it's not the same as when I would just walk into the department and run into my office mate and uh, I'd ask him a question about something I was thinking about and then that was it. You know, a three-hour conversation ensues and we both learn a lot. I don't think that kind of thing is going to happen quite as, as straightforwardly without a campus-based university. But I would like to distinguish between two things. There's, on the one hand, there's what would we lose if we lose a, a, a campus-based system? Um, we, it may be that we lose a lot of good stuff. On the other hand, um, is the fact that we would lose that going to protect us from the economic winds? Um, I mean, we can howl and complain that, oh, it's not fair and we're losing so much. That doesn't necessarily mean that the ship isn't going to sink. Um, the ship may sink unfairly. The ship may sink and be replaced with something worse. Uh, that's a distinct question from whether or not the ship's going to sink. And the problem is that I think that it's not, the argument for a campus-based university economically is going to have to be made um, with respect to undergraduate students because those are the people who are coming in and bringing in large fees uh, in large numbers that are keeping the economic situation the way that it is. If they start to desert, if they don't, if they feel they can get a better, cheaper education elsewhere, or some better, some better balance of, 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 of quality and, and, and cost elsewhere, then that could undermine the whole system, even if um, it would be ideal for PhDs to all be in the same location. Yeah, I just want to uh, second what you said about in-person conversations. I mean, thinking back to my experience in grad school, um, being able to have conversations with you in particular was was awesome. I mean, that was the, that was the best part. And often they were spontaneous. Um, we didn't set up an appointment, but you know. Um, we would just go out for lunch all of a sudden or something and have a great conversation. And I love that. And yeah, I think that would be much harder to do if it went um, all online. Maybe there would be pressures though. Maybe people would find ways, since they would be missing that, um, maybe people would come up with creative ways to at least somehow uh, try to get some of that spontaneous value back. I don't know what that would look like, but that is a concern uh, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, think I, I think I differ from you in, in, in uh, my degree of idealism. I, I tend to think that um, people will come up with ideas and the situation will often evolve in such a way that it will be incomparable. Um, on the one hand, we lost A, B, and C. On the other hand, we gained D, E, and F. 
and some of those DEFs, I don't even know what they're going to be. I don't, I can't anticipate what ideas people will have. Um, but I, I also think that there's a sense in which you know things may evolve for the net better generally, but they um, there are definitely uh, individual losses. There are definitely certain features and factors of our previous way of life that when we lose them, we lose them. Um, when we lose them, and maybe we lose them permanently, um, it really is regrettable. And um, there's nothing that completely replaces them. I mean, I guess one, one, one example that springs to mind is um, when, when I decided I, I wanted to become an academic, uh, I thought I was going to be a certain kind of doctor, a doctor of philosophy. I didn't imagine that I would be on call. Uh, that's the other kind of doctor, right? That's the medical doctor who's on call. They've got a beeper. Back in, back in the day, they'd have a beeper and they'd always have to be available. Um, but what's happened is that there's an expectation now that I am going to be available almost all the time. That uh, if a student emails me, they expect a response within 24 hours. Um, and the world has kind of moved to this pace because of the technology, because it's become so easy to effectively make people contactable at all times. Um, people are now expected to be contactable at all times. Even though there are no academic, there are really no emergencies in philosophy. Um, you know, any, questions that have, that have um, stayed unanswered for 3,000 years can, can wait another <laughs> hours. Um, but nevertheless, there's an expectation that, that that new tech, which was brought in originally to make our lives more convenient, did make our lives more convenient. But the cost of that is people expect you now to have uh, a, a more rapid turnaround for everything because you've been made more efficient, you've been made more productive. Um, so what used to be uh, a boon has now become an expectation. And I think there's a lot of things like that. As technology progresses, um, we, are, we become a slave to it in a certain way. Um, it's kind of like the, the, the mouse wheel turns a little faster and the mouse has to run a little faster. Uh, and that's, that seems to be the way things go. So I think that there are gonna be gains, there are gonna be losses. And I think that might, what might happen with academia is there may be um, a wrecking ball, an economic wrecking ball, uh, or there, there may be something less severe, but I certainly expect a lot of destruction. And I don't think it's gonna to care too much. The, the destruction is gonna happen. Uh, even if we insist that campuses do all these wonderful things. Um, unless we can persuade undergraduates that they do wonderful things for them, so wonderful that it's worth the huge fees that they pay, um, I think that the whole system is going to have to be, it, it's heading for a correction. I also wonder about, you know, speaking of lots of interlocking threads here, there, there was this whole uh, University of California strike among the graduate students. Um, I, I guess it started a few months ago and it started at UC Santa Cruz. The students, they weren't, they didn't think they were being paid enough and so they went on strike and that kind of at, overlapped with the whole pandemic thing. Um, but I'm wondering if this is another sign that something about the the traditional academic model is outmoded or unsustainable and it's just another spark maybe um that's putting pressure on, on the traditional model um 
So, and also, so the, I mean, you said the, the only thing we need professors for is to grade. If we've already got one professor at Harvard doing all the instruction, well, at least we still need people to grade. But if the, the TAs are doing the grading, teaching assistants, yet there's problems with them, they want to go on strike, um, but the university can't afford them, uh, then now you're going to have a problem even with the grading. Uh, so do you have any thoughts on the whole, I mean, there's many aspects of the strike, but do you see that as another sign that maybe the, the current system of higher education is on shaky foundations? Um, I want to give, a, I want to answer that with a weak no. Um, I, I say weak, meaning that you asked me, did I think that? And the answer is, I don't think that. That's not to say that I don't, that I think it's untrue. I, I just don't have a clear connection in my mind. I think there are lots of connections that I suspect um, or that are, are at least relevant. So, I mean, so bringing it back to what you said, um, professors are falling in the gap between the people who do the grading who are essential because they do the grading and the people who do the teaching who are essential because they do the teaching, but we don't need all, we don't need uh, hundreds or thousands of them across the country. We just need one on a YouTube channel. Um, so professors are in danger of falling through that, that gap between, between those two functions. Now, the, the American university system has been running for a long time. Um, and it has a, it's been able to leverage certain advantages with this model. So one of the things that this model does is it makes American universities very attractive for very highly talented professors. So they come in knowing that they're going to get their grading done by TAs. The TAs, meanwhile, what's in it for them? Well, they, they get paid very little, but part of their payment is, as it were, in the form of education. So they get their student fees paid for them. Um, so they're willing to accept uh, a low amount of money in hand. At least that's the theory. Um, and then it's good for the universities because, well, it keeps the whole ship afloat. They get to attract the talent. So, so it's supposed to be a win-win-win. Um, now, in recent years, what's, what's, so a number of factors have, have started to change this equation somewhat. So certainly in philosophy, it seems like uh, the number of available jobs um, the prospects for having an academic job if you get the PhD have become more bleak. The number of jobs has gone down, it seems. I don't have data to, um, to back that up. That's just a subjective impression of, of watching the job market over several years. Um, well, that means that the, the value of that, of the educational side of things goes down a little bit because the TA might start to wonder, well, why am I here, you know, uh, working my guts out, doing all of this grading for the professors to get a PhD, when I'm not going to get the job that I wanted at the end of it in academia. Now, could this varies, it's going to vary across the different disciplines. I mean, it's something like philosophy, the, the job normally is that you go into the academy yourself. Um, it's not as if there's a, you know, the oil industry is crying out for philosophers with PhDs. On the other hand, if I did a, um, a PhD in petrochemical engineering, then maybe I'm just going to go out and work in oil fields. Um, so it's going to vary across different disciplines. But there's, there's been a sudden change. Now, why are the number of jobs going down? 
Well, because that may be because uh, they're not replacing retirees. And why are they not doing that? Well, because the departments like philosophy are not as revenue producing. And why are they not as revenue producing? Well, partly because they don't get uh, National Science Foundation grants. They don't get big grants from the government because they're not producing tech or something that's uh, closely related to tech. Um, but also uh, possibly because um, there's less demand to bring from the students. Now that doesn't seem to be the case. I don't, I don't think it seems like what's happening is we're getting more and more and more students, but an awful lot of those students are um, coming from overseas. So it's very difficult to kind of generalize uh, over what's happening here. But let's just suppose that the attractiveness of an undergraduate degree starts to fall simply because you can get the information online and the companies are running their own tests and don't care what, what degree you've got. Then that is going to reduce the amount of money that the university can plausibly charge in student fees. That in turn is going to reduce the amount of money they're willing to spend on hiring professors in disciplines like philosophy that are not revenue producing in any other way other than the teaching. And that in turn is going to exacerbate the situation on the job market, reducing hires. And that in turn is going to reduce the attractiveness of a PhD in philosophy. Uh, unless um, the universities are willing to pay more money. Meanwhile, because they're bringing in a lot of overseas students and they're increasing the amount of students that they have uh, coming into university, um, that's causing uh, rents to rise in university towns. And that is pricing out TAs who are not paid very much money. The whole system is based upon the idea that they're not going to be paid too much money. So they're getting priced out of the town where they have to live to do the grading. And that seems to me to be the immediate cause of the, the, the strikes that are going on at the moment. So I, I do think everything's connected, but I'm unsure of what's going up and what's going down at any particular moment in time. And there's an awful lot of variables that I'm probably not considering, but I, I do think that there are connections. One other thread I just thought of is the uh, student loan debt forgiveness. It seems like there's there's been some pressure from uh, you know from some quarters of the culture. Uh, I don't know if Bernie Sanders was calling for this, but for Elizabeth Warren to have student let loan debt forgiven. Um, I mean, if if students can't even pay their tuition, um, then I mean, if it's turning out that students can't even pay their loans back, then I wonder if that means there are going to be fewer students in the future taking out loans because the loan givers know that they're not going to get the money back or something like that. And that, that might reduce demand from students. I'm not sure. Um, but I wonder if that might also exacerbate this, the, the current model. Um, so, yeah, I, if, if student loans get forgiven, um, that's quite, I mean, if, let's suppose they don't get forgiven. If they don't get forgiven, then students are going to be, are going to continue to take on a lifetime of debt 
in order to go to university. So then the question will be, when this information is available online and potential employers are giving their own tests, is it worth it? And I think if the idea starts to catch hold, if the idea, as it were, goes mimetic, that people who don't go to university but manage to educate themselves and then get a, a job at a good company do better and are better off, then that's going to be very bad for universities. Now, on the other hand, suppose that student loans are forgiven. Okay, this is, this is a tricky thing because one way they could be forgiven is you could, you could forgive all of the past debts and then you could have a program that from then on uh, pays for people to go to college so nobody ever runs up a debt again. If they do that, then of course that's great news for the universities, they're going to have lots of students. Um, but I just don't think it's financially viable. So the second option is, well, we just forgive all the debts, but you know, we restart all over again. Again, I think that's good for universities because people will now go to universities thinking, yeah, I'll run up a debt, but it'll get forgiven in 20 years. There'll be another Bernie Sanders that comes down uh, pipe in 20 or 30 years and uh, maybe 10 or 15 years um, who will forgive. So I won't be paying this for the rest of my life. Um, so once that happens, people will start expecting it to happen again. I mean, it's kind of like the same problem that we have um, with the, these companies that are too big to fail and get bailed out by the government when there's a, a financial crisis. Well, the signal is you may continue with, with your um, unwise choices because if, if anything bad does happen, don't worry, the government will come and bail you out again. So now it creates a new attitude, a new, a new sociology. Um, and so if we were to forgive all student debt, I think that that's what would happen. Um, but it's also kind of, it would be politically contentious to say to every generation up until now, your debts are forgiven and then say to the generation that's coming through, uh, but yours aren't. Um, so I wonder whether that's politically possible. I might be economically possible, but I wonder if it's politically possible. Um, Similarly, yeah, the reverse, if we were to kind of pay everybody's fees from now on, then the, the old generation would complain that uh, they didn't get their fees paid. Why don't they get their, their um, student loans wiped out? So I don't see any of these possibilities as being ec both economically and politically likely. All right. So let's, we've talked about higher education for a while and how the coronavirus has impacted that. But now I'm interested in discussing the more of what's been in the news in the political and economic aspects of this. Um, not particular, not just as it relates to higher education, but more generally. And also I'd like to tie it into the sort of topics I talk about in my channel, selfishness, altruism, um, so let me ask you about the lockdowns. So I, I've wondered about those lockdowns, whether it's right to interpret them as some people are being act, asked to sacrifice themselves, be very unselfish for the sake of other people, particularly old people or people with 
pre-existing conditions who are especially vulnerable. Um, and, and I wonder if, if this is, because this is a universal lockdown, it's not just, uh, and it's not voluntary either. It's not, you can choose to not go to work or put a temporary hold on your business, but we're gonna force you to, under, under mandate of law, you're forced to stay at home and you know this has caused many people to lose their jobs unemployment is at a record high um and it's and it's universal it's not just if you're in a certain category who's vulnerable so i'm wondering if if some people are being sacrificed for the sake of other people and whether this is a form of kind of imposing a morality of sacrifice or of altruism of living for the sake of others and um, the more is it imposing anti-selfishness in a way do you have any thoughts on any of that yeah um, well so I, I think it is it is in fact asking some people to sacrifice more it is it's a redistribution of disadvantage and it's a pretty wild one that has been brought in in a hurry and has not been really thought through. Um, so it, it, you could ask whether or not it's the best system to bring in in a hurry, given that you're bringing it in a hurry, is it the best? Um, I'm not sure it's the system we would choose if we had thought about this long enough. And one of the things that's actually quite surprised me about this whole thing is um, the extent to which it seemed to catch everybody off guard despite the fact that very learned people have been saying for years that there's going to be a pandemic, despite the fact that we've had many warning shots with respect to the SARS virus, um, Ebola, MERS, uh, none of which quite went global, but they were, they were rumbling, they were tremors, uh, if, by analogy with, with um, um, seismic geology. Um, so the, it's surprising to me that there didn't seem to be a plan in place and that governments around the world have been hurriedly making things up. Um, okay, but so there's a question about whether or not this is the best plan and so on, but what it seems to me definitely to be is it's a redistribution of disadvantage. So that's to say you just let the, the, vi the, the virus rip through the population. There are a certain number of people, there are a certain type of people who are going to get hit the hardest. Uh, the demographics that are going to suffer the most are going to be old people and people who have pre-existing conditions. And what you're doing is you're, you're imposing this lockdown. Um, you're now imposing a heavier penalty upon, for example, people who are self-employed, especially in kind of retail or uh, in the service industries. You're, you're imposing a heavy penalty on them in order that people who previously quite highly likely to get it and be very badly affected by it, have a smaller likelihood of uh, getting it and being badly affected by it. In particular, you're hoping not to overwhelm the emergency services. Uh, so you're redistributing bad luck. Um, and insofar as you are doing that, and insofar as the government is doing that, uh, I would say yes, they, it's, it's uh, forcing people to make sacrifices for the good of others. Now, you could ameliorate that 
conclusion a little bit by saying, well, it's going to help the people who are being asked to make the sacrifices themselves. I mean, this is going to be their parents and grandparents who they're helping. It could be, you know, their loved ones could be themselves if they've got a pre-existing condition. Um, you know, not to mention the fact that if you if you fall over, um, uh, you're in an accident, you're in a car accident, let's say, and you need emergency treatment at the hospital, and you can't get it because the emergency services are overwhelmed by the coronavirus, then that's bad for you. So you're helping yourself in that regard as well by um, playing along with these measures. But I think even if you factor that in, it's, going, it's, never, it's nevertheless going to be a redistribution of disadvantage. There are some people who are um, going to suffer a lot more um, because of the lockdown than others. And there are people who would not have suffered as much or nearly as much had they not been locked in. So uh, those people are sacrificing uh, more than the ordinary person for the greater good, assuming it is for the greater good. Uh, you mentioned that you would, uh, it, the, the car example, if you get in a car accident, then you're, was the idea that you were less like if the hospitals are overwhelmed because of the so many resources are being devoted to the coronavirus that means that you who get in this car accident are less likely to be able to get the treatment you need right. so um the the way that the policies are being maybe uh favoring is a way to put it favoring people who get this coronavirus um, it's also sacrificing the people who are getting ill from other sorts of uh, conditions, like being in a car accident. Was that? No, 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 no. I meant it the other way around. Uh, I, I meant it to say, look, if we just let the virus rip, then there's going to be uh, a period in which the emergency services are overwhelmed. There will be simply too many cases of coronavirus and too few staff to take care of all of them. And if you were to get in a car accident during that moment, you would also find yourself unable to get the treatment you need because the services were overwhelmed by the coronavirus cases. So by flattening the curve, this is the plan, by introducing social distancing measures and lockdown, the idea is to, is to stop the, the, the curve from spiking so high that the emergency system, the emergency services are overwhelmed and to keep it relatively flat. Um, of course, the, expense, the downside of that is it's going to make it longer, but that's a different issue. So oh, I see. So your idea was you would be helped by the flattening of the curve, even if you weren't suffering from Corona, but you got in a car accident. Yes. Okay. And moreover, you can make the case that, well, you're also helped by the coronavirus, even if you don't have an accident, because you, you at least know that if you did, you will be taken care of. So you, you have all the, the psychological benefits of, of in a safety net, um, even if you never actually need it. So I'm just saying that, that that would ameliorate the point that some people are sacrificing for the good of others. Uh, at least they'd be getting some good from it. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think it, it's not gonna change the fact that this is, this is gonna fall unequally across the population, that some people are gonna be harmed an awful lot. They're gonna have to sacrifice an awful lot for this. I mean, like right now, for example, I'm not sacrificing very much. 
Um, I'm at home. I can still write papers. I can do my research. I can do my admin. Um, you know, I still got my job. I still got an income coming in. And so I'm not one of the people who is being asked to sacrifice a lot. But if I, um, somebody who works as a, uh, a hairdresser, a barber, but they have to close down, that's, that's, that's their income stream's gone, right? They can't cut hair anymore, that their, their income stream's gone. I suffer a little because I can't get my hair cut, yeah. but they're suffering much more than I am. Um, so that person is bearing a, a lot of the brunt of this. So they're making a, a relatively large sacrifice and it's, it's unequal. Um, as I say, it's ameliorated somewhat by the fact that they get some of the benefit of this, but, um, um, but that doesn't change the fact that we all get that benefit, but they're, but they're sacrificing more. Another angle on this, uh, which is individualism versus collectivism. So I, I'm wondering if the, the lockdowns are a collectivist kind of solution in that they're being imposed universally on an entire state's population, and most states have done this, I guess, I think 90% last I checked, of the population in the US is subject to these mandatory lockdowns, as opposed to um, A, leaving it voluntary, and B, uh, restricting it in cases where it is mandatory. Like if, if you've got the um, virus, then, it's you know reasonable to quarantine that person, especially if they're going, if they otherwise would be uh, infecting others, in particular those who could die from it or are likely to die, the old and the people with pre-existing conditions. So I'm wondering if in a more individualistic approach would be let people decide for themselves, given their particular circumstances, whether it makes sense for them to stay at home or socially distance, physically distance, as opposed to uh, what might be a, called a collectivist solution, where you just uniformly put everybody into one category as dangerous or as susceptible to danger, um, kind of one size fits all solution. So I, I'm wondering if uh, collectivism is is a is a proper way to think about what's been about these universal mandatory lockdowns as opposed to an individualist approach. Does that uh, sound like a correct way yeah. to think about it? I find the question quite difficult to answer. Um, so, so one issue that I have here is, look, even if you, if you, even if you have a, a set of rules that, that goes follows, that um, people who have the disease must be quarantined, uh, people who are vulnerable must be quarantined, Everybody else use your discretion. Um, you say, well, is that more individualistic? I'm not sure. I'm not sure because for the first reason I'm not sure is because it seems to be coming from a collectivist place. It seems to be, the motivation seems to be collectivist, nevertheless. So we're asking what is, the, what is the best for the whole? And we're coming up with some set of rules. And the idea is this is what is best for the whole. And that's still a collectivist set of rules, even if, um, they're applying the rules differently to different de demographics. There are different rules for de different demographics. Nevertheless, it's coming from a place where society is being managed 
on the top down. Um, and you know, if you're in that group, you need to be in this line. If you're in that group, you need to be in this line. Um, that seems, still seems to have quite a powerful collectivist um, element to it. Now, I guess what you could say is you could say, well, what we should do is we should, we should take the measures that are, uh, if there's a measure that can have the same effect, but it's less offensive to individual liberties, then we should take that. Uh, if, that's, if that's the rule, that seems like it's uh, a more individualist rule. Because um, it's acknowledging the value of individual rights and liberties. Uh, whereas you could argue, well, clearly we don't have that rule um, because we're, we're doing something that's much more injurious to individual rights and liberties. Uh, despite not obviously having a much better effect. Um, so in that case, you might say that that is evidence that we have some a more collectivist policy in place. I guess you could make that argument. What is is, to summarize, this is more collectivist than it needs to be um, because it's, it's uh, paying insufficient regard to individual rights and liberties. So uh, one case I'm wondering about is people who might get the virus and have a good chance of dying, elderly people, let's say, should they still be free to go out in the way they normally would if there weren't a pandemic and just take that risk? Um, and, you know, if they get sick, they, they can't, uh, I guess in, in a, in a free healthcare society, I don't think they would uh, be required to get treatment. Like if they need hospitalization, there wouldn't be a mandate on the hospital to serve this person. Maybe it would just be too bad for them if, if they were, um, if they needed uh, help or maybe the, the, the hospital would be free to charge them, you know, an exorbitant amount in order to, uh, deal with the virus problem, but would an individualist approach, what would that look like? Would it mean that people can take these risks to themselves? That, that maybe the government can quarantine you if you have the virus and you're, there's a good chance you're going to spread it to other people because then you would be doing them harm. But if you think, if you're on the other side of it, if you think that um, you might get the virus as opposed to transmit it to someone else, should you be allowed to take that risk and just, you know, bear the consequences? Um, would that be an individualist approach? Like if you're a grandmother or grandfather and you say, I really want to see my grandkids. I know it's going to be risky, but mm -hmm. you no, know, I only have a little bit of time left in life and I don't want to spend it locked up in my house. Um, should not be free to. Oh, well, so one particular, I mean, I think you've kind of covered everything I would want to cover in your question. It, it, um, so at the risk of saying some things that are a little bit redundant. The first thing is, um, it seems to me pretty obvious that you should be allowed to risk your own life if you wish. Um, I mean, maybe there, there are limits on that, I suppose. But in this particular case where you've got a, a virus that is not killing a large percentage of the population, and the real problem with coronavirus is that a small percentage of a large number is a large number. So you're going to get a large number of deaths, even though it's a small percentage. Um, but 
so if you're an individual, I mean, the average person has got more, probably more than a 99% chance of surviving the coronavirus if they get it. Uh, it looks like the death rate is below 1%. Uh, so let's just assume that it is. Let's assume that it's 0.9, which makes it significantly more lethal than the flu, or the average flu, I should say. Um, but in that case, it means you've got, an, if you get it, you've got a 99% chance, 0.1% chance of surviving it, if you're just a, a random person. Um, given those odds, you might think it should be up to me whether or not I, I go and take a risk with myself. Added to that, even if you know, you're a particularly, in a particularly vulnerable group, um, so suppose that you're, suppose that for whatever reason, you only have a couple of years left to live. You're either sick or you're very old, and by your best estimation, you've got about two years left. You might think to yourself, I don't want to spend the next two years in lockdown, right? This is all I've got left. Um, and so I'm willing to take a risk. What are the percentages? And it turns out the percentage that you'll survive is about 85%. There's a much bigger chance of, of dying if you get it. It's 15%, which is kind of like Russian roulette. It's about one in six. Um, in that case, you might think, you still might think, yeah, I'll take the 15% chance that I die because I will be losing two years rather than lose the two years anyway, in a way, by spending them on lockdown, where I lose them as two valuable years, even though I don't lose them as two years per se. Um, you, might, you might rationally take that choice. And I think people should be allowed to rationally take that choice if that is, if I've characterized the whole situation. But I haven't. And this comes back to the other thing that you, that you raised, which is that when I take a risk, I risk others. And it seemed practically impossible to eliminate that. How? Well, if I go out and I catch the virus, right? True, I can then self-quarantine a responsible person and make sure nobody gets it from me. But if I get really sick, then I have to take a hospital bed. And if I take a hospital bed in a city where the emergency services are overwhelmed as New York seems to be at the moment, then I am, if I get the bed, I am effectively removing a bed that someone else might have had. So my decisions are, effect, are affecting other people. Um, so that might be a justification that the government could use for imposing lockdown upon me, even though um, I would prefer to take my chances with the Reaper. Uh, than suffer it any longer. Yeah, maybe those people, they could just sign a waiver and say, look. Yeah, that's right. you have that in your question. Unfortunately, I don't think that is feasible in the kind of society we live in. We just don't have the kind of legal edifice that, did I, did I start this sentence with unfortunately? I'm not sure it is unfortunate, but, but it nevertheless is the case that I, I don't think there's any there's there's any precedent for that kind of um, a waiver um there's nothing like it in law and we won't be able to get something like it in law in a hurry um but this idea that yeah i waive my right to be treated uh because i because i i am taking a risk um in theory we could do it but uh i just don't imagine that ever ever happening in a society like this one I mean, it's a bit like the Merchant of Venice, you know, so the, there's, 
The Merchant of Venice, famously, I think it's Antonio is the character who um, signs a pound of his flesh away as forfeit should he fail to pay the debt. Uh, a pound of his flesh of that closest to the heart. So it's going to kill him. Um, you can't sign a contract like that in the United States or in any Western democracy. You can't sign a contract where your life is forfeit. And I think it would be comparable to that. So I just don't think, um, I don't think it's going to happen. But philosophically, you might ask, well, supposing we could have such a contract, should it be allowed? Uh, so, sorry, should, should people be allowed to, to leave on that basis? Yeah, I don't see why not. I mean, if they, if they waive their right to treatment and we can be assured that if they caught it, so, you know, everybody's running around with a test on their hands that tells them the moment they catch it so they can immediately self-quarantine. Uh, so given these hypotheticals, you just want to isolate the question of rights. But in that case, yeah, I think, I think they should be allowed to just do what they want. So let's bring to a case where um, what we would like ideally uh, and what we can have pragmatically are not the same. Uh, so even, even given that I have individualistic instincts that lend, lend me to the view that if you can control for your harm to others, you should be allowed to do what you want. I think we're in a case here where you can't control for your harm to others. This, this makes me think that uh, controls breed further controls. This is a, uh, a, a saying I've heard described about uh, like when the government interferes with the economy in one way, it causes certain problems, which to fix, it has to now interfere in another way. And I think this might be an instance of it where when you, if you institute a right to healthcare, or a right to be treated in an emergency room, at first you might just look at that in isolation. It's like, oh, isn't that a nice thing? But then something like this happens. Now, once you granted people that right, now you need some way to enforce that right. So now that's gonna lead to these lockdowns um, of people who wanna take the risk because you've got this principle in place that- It's very interesting that, that the right to healthcare, the right to be treated in an emergency room, it's not, as far as I know, it's not enshrined in the Constitution. Um, it's, the kind, it's, it's a funny kind of right because it has emerged, I think, and I'm kind of generalizing over the history here, so I'm not speaking, um, I'm not speaking with, 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 with great evidence, but it seems to me that the reason you get treated in in emergency situation by doctors is because of the disposition of doctors and the predictable disposition of doctors and the robust disposition of doctors over centuries, which is to say they're going to treat you and they regard it as part of their duty. They regard it as part of their ethical duty as doctors, um, such that it's never really needed a very strong encoding in law. You, there's never been a moment when they had to write, oh, you know, you're obliged to, to treat them. Um, there, are, there, are, there are some things like that. I mean, there's the problem with, you know, well, we're a hospital and we don't have enough money to treat emergency cases that come in. Um, and so it's become part of the law that you have to treat people in the emergency room. 
But there's an, it's an easy law to pass in our society because the doctors are of that mindset anyway. The hospital would already have been fighting with its doctors. Uh, if, they, if they'd issued a dictate that said, um, if somebody comes in with that insurance into the emergency room, just turn them away, even if you know, they're bleeding out, they would have had uh, uh, a riot. They would have had an absolute rebellion from their doctors and their nurses because that's just not the way that they, they see what they're doing. They see themselves as saving lives, first and foremost, getting paid for it, of course. It's gotta be an economy, but the main aim of what they're doing is to save people's lives. And so very hard to get doctors into the mindset where they're just gonna let you bleed out. They're not gonna try to save your life. And so this is why we have the traditions that we do, I think. It's, it's really coming from the medics themselves. So now, as an individualist, you've got to ask yourself, well, those medics are freely choosing to live by this code. And um, they're not going to accept your waivers. So given that we live in a society where medics won't freely, as individuals, will not take that waiver, they will tear it up. You come in with that waiver parked in your pocket, what does this say? Do not, I'm not entitled to treatment. Yeah, throw that away. And they'll, just keep, they'll, they'll treat you. So given that you're in a situation where medics will feel duty bound to treat you, whether it's the law or not, um, you're not in a position to relinquish your right to medical treatment. I guess it's different if it's a right than uh, if it's- well, I, I, I can sacrifice the word right. But um, you, are, you are going to get treated and there's no way for you to, to you're, you are going to get treated if, if you come in first. And so you're going to get a bed if you come in first, which means that you're going to exclude a person from a bed if they come in later on and all the beds are taken. And that's just the way it is because of the way doctors are, whether you like it or not. So given that you know doctors are going to react like that, you're not in a position to actually waive. Um, uh, I don't, I'm trying to avoid the word right. Um, but you're not you're not in in a, in a position to waive treatment. Uh, I guess if there's if it does come to a point where there just aren't enough beds and they have to choose somebody, uh, maybe at that point they would they would triage such that if you waive your right, then um, you don't get the bed. You know, all things being equal, if one person has waived the right and another hasn't, I guess then it makes sense to. Um, not I mean, this is the point where I'd have to go and ask the medics themselves. Um, my instinct is that they would be deeply uncomfortable with that. See, medics like to make decisions based upon medical premises and medical inferences, medical data. They don't like to make it based upon economic data or who signed what contract. Um, so if, if you've got a more pressing medical need than the guy who's just come in, even though he's got a pressing medical need, it's not quite as pressing as yours. Um, they're going to want to keep you in the bed. So I'm taking a case where it's the same. All no, things. No, I, don't want, I want to change it to one where it's not the same. Okay. Because I, th I think there's a legitimate case where it's not the same. So um, suppose that you come in and if you don't get treatment, there's a 97% chance you will die. Right. 
and another guy comes in at the same time, and if he doesn't get treatment, there's a 96% chance that he will die. Now the argument, I suppose that all the percentages are clear to everybody involved and the doctors are able to just read the percentage right off your case. Oh, this one's a 97%, this one's only a 96%. And they're always right. Then they're gonna to wanna to give the bed, if there's only one bed, they're gonna to wanna to give the bed to the 97%, not to the 96%. Why? Because the 96% has a 4% chance of surviving. So it's better to treat the 97%. You're gonna get a better percentage overall. All else being equal. Um, that's what they're going to want to do. Now you've got your waiver. Well, I waived my right to treatment. Well, now they're going to ask, okay, you're forcing them to make the following decision. Should they overturn the medical need in this case and give the bed to the other person, even though that person is only um, has, a, has a less, a smaller chance of dying? Should they give it to them? in this case. And I think that's just, the, it's a very different, I mean, it's a very, it's one of those decisions that's difficult in the sense that you don't even know how to make pro progress on it. I guess one way is you say, well, they sound the way of a tough luck for them. Um, well, what if some, what if the next guy who comes in only has a 1% chance of dying? I mean, this is kind of hypochondriac comes in, right? You can hypochondriac say, oh, I need that bed over there because that guy waived his right. Even though he's got a 97% chance of dying, he's waived his right to a bed. Uh, should the hypoch I said the hypochondriac and one percenter, you could do those cases distinctly. So the one percenter comes in and says, I've got a 1% chance, so give me the bed. And another person comes in and says, well, I'm a, I, think, I think I've got a 1% chance, give me the bed. I mean, it seems weird to give the bed to the hypochondriac just because the person who's dying waived his rights. Mm. What would triage work like in that situation? I guess I'm thinking maybe these cases you're talking about are less of a actual issue that are causing problems than cases where, I mean, I've heard people abuse the emergency room uh, they, you know, they come in with a cold or I don't know if something that mild, but some things that which don't really, they're not emergencies, but they know because it's the law that they have to get treated. If, uh, if they come into the emergency room, they can't be turned away. People take advantage of that. I mean, it's like any good, really. It's a, I guess the principle of economics, <laughs> you lower the price, you increase the demand. Well, if you reduce the price of medical service to zero, then you're going to have all kinds of people coming in and uh, taking advantage of that service, which is um, slowing them down from genuine, being able to help with uh, genuine emergencies. Um, so I think it might be more of that kind of consideration that's causing problems in um, emergency rooms in these kinds no, of cases? No, I, I don't think it is. I mean, quite apart from that, the problem is that if we, if we allow the virus to rip, according to many models, um, and the models that governments seem to be listening to, um, the emergency services will be overwhelmed. You're going to get a, a short-term spike. You're going to get a spike in the, near term, in the near term that's going to be way above what the emergency services can handle. 
irrespective of whether there are people coming in because you know they stopped their talk. Um, which, by the way, I expect they won't, um, sure. because I'm not going to go into a disease-ridden emergency room with a stub toe. Uh, I'm going to find a different way to deal with that, even even if I was ordinarily disposed to get free treatment. Yeah, um, I guess I'm. I'm thinking of the. Uh... Like these 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 kids, these college kids who were uh, during spring break, they would have these massive gatherings, and uh, I guess people were critical of that. They were just totally ignoring social distancing. Now, if if the virus started to rip through them, and they started going into the emergency room at a time like this, when uh, you know, the coronavirus is, is already overwhelming. Well, assuming it's overwhelming certain hospitals, I think it, the doctors then would have to, I guess, given the laws on the books now, they would have to treat these people, even the irresponsible ones who were ignoring all the guidelines. Um, and maybe if, if they were able to triage, uh, or to the extent they're able to triage, it, it seems reasonable that that they might want to treat the people who are acting more responsibly first, or at least charge a lot more money to the people who were not acting responsibly. But that, that kind of discrimination is, is not possible when you have this right to treatment in an emergency room. Um, or at least I don't know that it's, it's possible, but it seems like, maybe it would be a good thing if it were possible to uh, treat people on a more individualistic basis to go back to the idea of individualism versus collectivism instead of treating everybody the same regardless of their circumstances and the way they've been acting uh, if it were possible to treat people in a more individualist kind of way that seems like that would be a good thing well i i, I mean i can see upsides to it I can, I can also see downsides and problems to it i mean even so your principle of responsibility that people should who have been irresponsible should be put to the back of the line um it's complicated by the the variable of maturity so presumably you wouldn't think this was the case with a seven-year-old so a seven-year-old did something irresponsible it's the seven-year-old's own fault they caught the coronavirus they were told not to go to go visit grandma um but you know, while the parent wasn't looking, they got out of the house, they ran around to grandma's, they gave her a big hug before grandma could tell it. Grandma couldn't even push them away without touching them. Um, you know, it's the seven-year-old's fault, but the kid died. Um, presumably, we don't want to apply it to the seven-year-old. Why? Because this person is not mature. Okay, so what do we do instead? Well, the law generally draws a line, although even the law is inconsistent a lot of the time, but there's, a, there's a, a law, a line that you draw at 18 years old and you say, okay, below that, we don't count you as responsible and above that, you're responsible. But morally speaking, that is a very arbitrary line. Presumably that the actual uh, maturity, evolution of maturity is, 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 is a smooth gradient. So you're only a little bit more mature the day after your 18th birthday than you were the day before it. And that's assuming it's monotonic. It might actually go up and down a little bit. Um, so when you see 
when you see 18 and 19 year olds uh, on spring break, you know, you think mm, they're immature, right? Um, we're gonna let them die? Is that the right, the right punishment at that point? I, I don't feel that that is the right way to reason about this. Well, I mean, let's, to compare apples to apples, let's take two 19 year olds, one of whom was responsible and one of whom was not. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're, if you've got limited hospital capacity and you know, you can only give one bed away, then you know, does it make sense to give it to the one who was acting responsibly? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can, you can potentially do this if you control every variable um, so that we have a nice clean case, then you could say, yeah, it should be determined in order of who's been behaving more responsibly. But that, that's a very pure philosophical situation and, and not pragmatically useful. Because all it really does is it tells us that responsibility uh, is at least a tiebreaker after every other factor has been brought in. Um, it might be more than a tiebreaker because we haven't decided how it ranks with other factors because we equalized everything. So we just don't know whether it ranks more than other factors. Once you start to bring in the other factors again, it starts to, that clean situation goes away. So suppose you've got a bed between a, a responsible man who has six months left to live, six months to a year left to live anyway, because of his pre-existing conditions. Uh, he's got a cancer diagnosis. It's, it's, there's nothing they can do about the cancer. He's got one year left to live. He's been very responsible about the coronavirus because he knows that he's in a high-risk group. But he got unlucky anyway and he caught it. He really wanted that last year, but it looks like if he doesn't get treatment, he's going to die. Case two, you've got a 19-year-old who was partying on the beach, caught the coronavirus, and also is going to die if he doesn't get treatment. But if he gets treatment, he's looking at another 50, 60, 70 years of life. Um, do we decide for the more responsible person in that scenario? Even though that person would only be losing one year? Or do we decide, well, going to give the kid a break because he's got so many more years to lose? So I think these, are, these, are, these factors make these kind of decisions very hard. But whether they've been responsible, so the first thing you do is if you, if you put this whether they've been responsible um, factor into play, you're asking doctors to make that judgment and then to weigh that judgment, to weigh that factor against all the other factors. I think it's just... Um, an impractical burden to place upon medical staff. Uh, I mean, here's another thing as well. This is just, just, just to get it more philosophical. Suppose that we've got two cases, two 19-year-olds, one of whom is socially very popular and the other of whom is socially very unpopular. Uh, the socially unpopular one has practiced effective social distancing methods. Why? Well, because that's the way he lives. Sure. He doesn't mix with anybody anyway on the best of days. Um, the other one has been partying with friends. Well, was the person who wasn't partying more responsible? Or were they just uh, doing what they ordinarily do? Were both of them just doing what they ordinarily do? And one of them just happens that his ordinary behavior is uh, less likely to, to 
catch the coronavirus, even though they both ended up catching it. Because in that case, it doesn't seem like there's a moral argument for why both of them doing what they want to do. Um, one of them should be favored over the other. And then the problem is, well, there's a gradient between those cases, right? Because the person who, suppose we, we have a third case now, um, and this is somebody who's very popular and they caught the coronavirus after hanging out with friends, but they've been hanging out with friends a lot less because of the virus. Whereas the guy who doesn't have any friends hasn't changed his lifestyle at all. So one of them has undergone uh, a negative change in his lifestyle to try and reduce the chances of coronavirus. And the other one hasn't. So how do you judge those cases? Yeah, the, um, I mean, there's, there's so many complexities to these cases. And I think this might suggest that we, because there are so many individual complexities, all the more it makes sense to want to take an individualist approach and not have, you know, a cookie cutter, one size fits all solution. I mean, another consideration I was thinking of is like, what about the doctor? Who decides like when you have to triage these people, um, like, should it be up to the doctor uh, and or the insurance company, if there is one, if the person has insurance? I mean, maybe if you're, let's say it's your grandson, you're, let's say you're a doctor and your grandson has been this irresponsible 19-year-old partying on the beach and you have to choose between your grandson and someone who's, you don't know at all, he's a stranger, but he's been very responsible. This old person who has one year to live, left to live, who's got cancer that you were describing. Um, maybe if you weren't a blood relative, <laughs> uh, you might say, oh, well, I wanna, I wanna reward the responsible guy. Um, but maybe if you happen to be related to the kid, um, you're gonna give him preference, even though he was irresponsible. So maybe the same, in the same situation, a different doctor might choose differently depending on he's, how he's related to the others. But yeah. instead, you know, when you have these one-size-fits-all rules, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that it, it makes it harder. Or you, there's less, less overall rationality or something um, when you're forcing everyone to decide in a certain way rather than allowing them to take into consideration as many of these intricacies as possible. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that I agree with it with your summary judgment there. It seems that when you allow all these extra intricacies in, you complicate the situation, make the decision more difficult. I mean, I, so, so th there's always gonna be a trade-off, I think, between having a decision made efficiently and having it made correctly. So the faster you make the decision, the less time you spend contemplating all the ins and outs and making sure you reach the right decision. At the same time, if you, if you know that if you reduce the factors, then you're increasing efficiency. Um, and so you're decreasing the chance of getting the right answer. This is all so far, um, I'm agreeing with you. But what complicates this is time is a factor. Time is a factor on whether people live or die. We don't have time to bring together, when somebody comes to the hospital, we don't have time to bring together um, a committee consisting of a doctor, an economist, uh, an ethicist, uh, a Randian, uh, somebody who's looked at this person's personal history, 
both recently have they been obeying social distancing rules more than usual about the same as, as average as the average person you know etc all these different comparisons you can make relative to the, their life so far and relative to other people's lives um, to go through this whole complete analysis and then decide this person deserves a bed more than the other person they don't have time to do that they'll both die while you're making that decision uh, not to mention you're using up the doctor's valuable time so pragmatically what we end up doing is we end up saying okay the doctor makes a decision based upon medical need and the doctor doesn't have to consult with economists or anybody else the doctor has competence when it comes to deciding um, what the need is it's not clear that anybody has competence when it comes to deciding who deserves what given how responsible they've been i mean ethicists might claim expertise there but i think it's arguable whether or not they have genuine objective skills um, that, that lead to getting the right answer more often than not because it's hard to know independently of asking the ethicist what the right answer is it's not as if we have an independent outcome that we can compare against the ethicist decisions to see whether they got it right or not whereas with medical need we do we have did the patient live or die what are the numbers um, so the doctor has the competence for medical decisions and that's I am struggling to see a more practical system than that. Um, I don't think it's perfect. I think that, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. One is there's this, the hedonic calculus that's sometimes discussed in connection with utilitarianism. Um, like how do you figure out what's the greatest good for the greatest number in a given case, given that there are these uh, ever not, never ending ramifications mm -hmm. of any given action, which we discussed or which you discussed in the previous time you were on the show. Um, so, but I don't, I don't think you need the private individuals can, can, can make these decisions. Like I could spend, um, you know, hours and hours deciding whether I should eat cornflakes for breakfast or scrambled eggs <laughs> but th there comes a point where you know it's, it's just not worth the time to 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 continue to think about it it's better just to act and choose one um, so I'm not proposing that um, we should you know have consider all these things like how responsible was someone how old was he all, all these intricacies when there's a need to act I'm just I'm saying that why not leave it up to private individuals to uh, apply whatever constraints they have as opposed to the government handing on from on high uh, thou shalt treat everyone um, who enters the emergency room or something so why not just leave it up to uh, individuals to apply whatever as much of these intricacies or think about these intricacies as much as they think they should, or as much as it seems reasonable to, and then let them make the decision as opposed to having the government force them to do whatever. That, that's what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that, you know, people think, you know, ad nauseum about some decision when, you know, action has to be taken. I'm just saying, um, in, 
an individualist approach, which I favor, uh, seems like uh, a better way to go here. You could you could get better outcomes that are um, that do make more discriminations between these two 19 year olds, one who is responsible and one who is not, for instance, which you might not be able to make if you are just giving these orders by the government of what you have to do. I'm not sure if that made sense, but that's kind of where my mind was going. Well, I mean, this brings us, it brings us to one of the, in my opinion, one of the legitimate functions of government is to help solve collective action problems. Um, and I think this is a collective action problem. So we have a problem here where, look, I may wish to, um, to behave a certain way for the common good, but there's no use me behaving well for the common good. Unless everybody else also decides to behave the same way, it's only by behaving as a collective that we're gonna get the common good. Um, and so that, that's, that's a place where I feel like, oh, then it's a good thing for the government to come in and impose a rule. Um, so let's get away from the coronavirus for a moment. Let's deal with kind of simpler cases. So the, the, there's the famous case of the prisoner's dilemma, where the best outcome is that you and I both cooperate. But the best outcome given that you cooperate, best outcome for me, uh, comes if I defect. Right? So there are lots of situations like this that you can dream up. Um, you know, I'm going to buy something. We're, gonna, we're, we're doing a drug deal. Let's suppose we're doing we're, we're trading something illicit, but um, let's just assume that it's it's moral. But we live in a totalitarian state, so we don't want to be seen together doing the trade. So you're going to leave the goods in one place, and I'm going to leave the money in another, and then we're just going to go to the opposite places and pick up our end of the exchange. But then it occurs to you that you could leave the you could leave nothing in the space for the goods, and then go pick up the money, and then you have both. Um, I'm thinking the same thing. I could leave nothing in the space for the money, go pick up the goods, and then I'd have both. And so then what happens is we, we both defect on the other and we both end up with nothing, which is worse than had we done the trade because we both presumably are doing the trade for a reason. We both want, I want the goods more than the money, you want the money more than the goods. That's why we're doing the trade in the first place. But we both end up not having that. So in such cases, these are collective action problems. They're, place, they're places where if we all behave according to rational self-interest, we end up worse off um, than if we behaved in a collectivist fashion. I don't think of this is these as a global argument for collectivism in all things at all times, I, I, but I do think that these are cases where um, a collectivist approach does better. Uh, or a similar, a similar case, perhaps a little bit closer to the one that we're considering is there's a limited resource and um, it, it's renewable. It renews, but it only renews at a certain pace. And if we all go and consume it at once, it will never renew. Right? So maybe it's a strawberry field. If we all go and ravage, if we all descend on the strawberry fields and eat all the strawberries. Um, you know, none of them will get planted for the next year and we won't have any strawberries anymore. Uh, or there's a, there's a renewable supply of clean water um, 
you know, it rains, it fills up the tub, we can all drink for a while. But if, if 10 of us go and drink the whole thing, then the rest of us get nothing. Um, you know, whatever you like, some renewable resource, best not consume it all at once. So we could all individually decide how much of it we want to consume, but the problem is, um, it's always nice to have a bit more than your share. And so how do you stop everybody going taking more than their share and then some of us don't get a share at all? Uh, well, it seems hard to do it on an individualistic basis because whatever share you take, I'm better off taking more. So if you're obeying the rules, if everybody's obeying the rules, right? Hey, it won't do any harm if I take a little bit more. It's only me, me alone taking a bit more isn't gonna uh, deplete the resource. Uh, if on the other hand, nobody else is following the rules and I might as well take more than my share because otherwise, I might, you know, who knows when I'll get it again. Um, but then if everybody thinks like I'm thinking, then we're all gonna take more than our share. Well, we're all behaving rationally. So these, these cases like this, it seems like the individualistic approaches don't function so well. And these are places where the government comes in and says, okay, now it's a rule that you only get a certain amount and anybody who breaks the rule gets punished. And the coronavirus outbreak seems like a similar case. It's like we need everybody to behave, or at least a huge number of people to behave a certain way if we're going to flatten the curve. Um, and letting people do that, they're in the same dilemma as before. If everybody else is following the rules, it doesn't matter if I go out and, and um, go do whatever I want. I can ignore the lockdown and there won't be any big problem. If on the other hand, um, nobody else is following the rules and I might as well go out. Uh, and everywhere in between, it seems like I'm not going to be the person who makes the big difference that's going to turn this from a uh, successful strategy to an unsuccessful strategy. So I might as well go out and then have all the benefits of um, freedom and, and still enjoy whatever benefits is being produced by the population as a whole from the lockdown. Each person is in a, is in a situation where they're rationally uh, better off breaking the rules. This is reminding you all. You need, to, you, need to, you need to increase the cost of breaking the rules. This is reminding me of the example from our previous episode about the playing the boombox in, in public. Um, and I think you were, or we were discussing whether, you know, how, how is it compatible with self-interest to not blare your, your music while you're going down the street? And I, I tried to make a case for that and it's, I think I would want to do something similar here with these kind of the prisoner's dilemma, for example, and these sorts of collective action cases you've been describing. Um, if, if you consider the long run consequences of acting in a certain way, um, you see that it is actually in your self-interest to act in some way that out of context might seem irrational, but in context, taking into consideration all the consequences, it seems, it does seem rational. So if that's right, then I'm not sure it would be a, 
it would be correct to say it's a collective a collective solution works best here better than an individualist solution it would just require having a a, a more uh thorough or nuanced or all-encompassing notion of what individualism consists of mm. just like i was arguing before if you have a more robust rich notion of what selfishness or egoism consists of you can see how that's compatible with not blurring your music well let me see let me see if i can in that spirit maybe i could try to make an individualistic case for the legal lock, the legal restrictions legally enforced lockdown um so the idea is well look what we want to do is we want to stop the uh, people from um individualizing the benefits of breaking the lockdown while distributing the risks but that's the natural situation the natural situation is it is no law against me going in um, we're just being asked to uh to implement social distancing there's no penalty if you, if you don't then what happens is that if i break the rule i contribute a little bit to the spread of the pandemic right in such a way that I, I might not personally spread it myself so i don't contribute necessarily in that concrete sense but in the sense that the more people who do what i do the more the the, the spread increases right so i'm contributing to that that likelihood of spread now but the risk, that risk is distributed. Everybody has to bear the, the penalty, the, the bad side of that um, equally. I don't, I don't, I don't become uh, myself more, uh, well, I, I mean, you, you might argue, well, you're, you're more likely to get it if, you, if you're disobeying the social distancing rules. But um, if I'm young, the thing about the coronavirus is it's, it's not killing a lot of young people. It's overwhelmingly killing people who are old and have, um, pre-existing conditions. So the really miserable uh, downside of what I'm doing is likely to fall on somebody else, right? Or we can imagine another disease scenario where it's distributed equally, but whatever, the point is this. The law comes in and corrects that. The law comes in and says, uh, those who break the rules, those who are irresponsible, will suffer more uh, than those who are responsible because we will impose legal sanctions upon people who behave irresponsibly. That will more than make up the deficit. So that what they're doing is they're, they're tying individual responsibility to individual behavior because nature hasn't bothered to do it. Nature has set things up in a perverse upside down way where all the risks fall upon people different than people who actually um, behave irresponsibly. So this comes back to your thing about people who come into hospital that the responsible people should get preference. It's a bit like that, but it's rather than giving that decision to the medics, it's coming over to the cops and the judicial system, which is better equipped to judge responsibility. And it says, yes, you have broken the rules. You are now going to, uh, you are now going to suffer. We've raised the cost of breaking the rules. You can still break the rules. <laughs> I mean, you're still free in a certain sense. You're free to break the law, um, but there's a cost to breaking the We've increased the cost of, of behavior. Well, isn't that a very individualistic way of looking at it? Um, uh, I think it might be. Um, it was a, as you were setting that example up, I was thinking, um, I, 
I do think it's, it makes sense in some cases to have lockdowns, even universal lockdowns. So I, in saying I, I favor an individualistic approach, I don't, I don't want to give the impression that uh, I think that implies it's never appropriate for the government to lock everyone down. I think sometimes it is. Um, someone uh, else mentioned uh, active shooter cases. Like if you've got some guy out on a rampage, um, it makes sense to lock everyone down uh, until you've got the shooter uh, you know, if controlled and stopped. Um, and, and I think that's, that's compatible with an individualist. It's in everyone's interest in the long run to have a, a rule like that. And I think it, with diseases, pandemics, it makes sense to have a rule like that. Um, so I guess it just, it comes down to the, the facts on the ground. Like in this particular case, is the virus so deadly and so contagious that it makes sense to apply this universal lockdown? And you know, could that be compatible with individualism? In this particular case, I doubt it is. Um, I, I think I, I recently saw somewhere that, you know, the Spanish flu was much more deadly of 1918. Um, and yet back then they didn't have, uh, anything like the universal lockdowns that we have now. I think what we're doing now is unprecedented. Um, so I think Individualism is compatible with universal lockdowns, but the circumstances which, in which it makes sense to do that and would it, in which it's not really collectivism, uh, I doubt the, that's the circumstances we're in right now. Yeah, okay. So a number of points there. So one point to be made there is that it seems that you agree with me that the government should be deciding whether or not to impose a lockdown or not. Uh, and then the question is whether or not it's justified in this case, but that there are hypothetical cases where it would be warranted. Um, I think so. And that, that also means that the government is deciding not to impose a lockdown. That's also a government decision. Uh, so in a way, the individualism, um, and so an opponent might argue that's, that's a, a sham of individualism. It's a fraud. If the government has the ability to lock you down and has chosen not to then you make your own decisions but by the leave of the government uh it's not true it's not true freedom it's it's permitted freedom um setting that aside um uh, it's gone my head that the, you make another point um that, that caused me to think of something well, there's the, the question about the, uh, whether the lockdown is warranted in this situation or not. And one of the curious things that, well, here's a, what happens to be a fact. So right down, uh, just down the way from where I live, every morning at 7 a.m., I get a wake-up call as the construction workers continue to build a set of townhouses about it. 30 yards away from where I live. Well, apparently there's, that's essential work. Building townhouses, essential work. Apparently it's permitted. 
And I've seen the argument made, and this lends some plausibility to it, that the people who are actually being asked to stay at home are mostly white collar workers and blue collar workers are being asked to continue to work. I don't think that's quite a perfect analogy, but there's, I think there's something to it. And one of the reasons that I think that this is unprecedented is because until now it hasn't really been feasible. Until now, if you stop the whole economy, um, that would, if you had a lockdown, that would stop most of the economy working and we would quickly tumble into economic ruin. But in the Western world right now, an awful lot of work can be done from home. An awful lot of banking can be done from home. Um, education can be done from home. Um, the internet has facilitated an awful lot of the, the lettered activities that people do. So it's allowing them to do, the, to do it from home. So they don't need to be out in the day. Um, and that's why a lockdown is unprecedented, is because it, until now it's not been economically possible. It's still going to be an economic strain, but for the first time in history, we can do this for a period and buy some time. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it can happen for the first time in history, and that's why it is happening. Um, but you also said, yeah, but control breeds control. Um, you know, the authorities get the taste of, uh, of uh, power on their lips and they look for more of it. Um, that may be true. I think that's a concern. I think there's a force that goes in that, that pushes in that direction. Happily, in Western economies, I think there's a much stronger force pushing in the opposite direction, which is that uh, the powers that be won't have much money if nobody's, nobody's able to go to work. And that, that is pushing more strongly in the opposite direction, such that I don't sense a strong risk of totalitarianism creeping in on the back of the coronavirus at this time. Just, uh, one thought on your, your point about uh, freedom by permission, government having the, the authority to lock you down and also to choose not to lock you down. Isn't that like a sham of freedom? Uh, I don't, I don't know that it is because I think it's the government's function as I think of it, it is as Rand thinks of it and, you know, uh, is to protect people from force and you can force people by, you know, using a gun or by uh, infecting them with some disease. So it's a form of force and we delegate our right of self-protection to the government. You know, of course there are emergencies like rights of self-defense where we can, you know. Right, right. The part that but, uses force to protect you from the threat of force. Right, so it points a gun at you and tells you to get back in your house because there's a disease going around. Um, so has it protected you from the use of force? No, because it's, it's just substituted a different kind of force. So how do you, what, how do you deal with cases like that? And the one that we're in quite more or less. I mean, if, if the, if the one were, well, I don't know if I want to talk about the one we're in, but 
the case where it would be justified to lock everyone down due to a disease, I guess is one where it seems like, I don't know, let's say um, maybe 99% of the population who just simply goes outside um, will catch the disease and uh, let's say if you come within, once you've got it, if you come within uh, 20 feet of anybody else, they will catch the disease from you. And anyone who does catch the disease has a 99% chance of dying within a week. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we stipulate that the, the numbers are like that, then you're basically forcing uh, other people, uh, you're threatening them with force if you simply go outside your house, because in all likelihood. That's, that's what's happening in this case as well, right? So even though- well, not with these numbers though. Well, the, the numbers, numbers are lower, but nevertheless, if you, let's, let's take the number of 1%. Let's suppose that this is gonna be lethal to 1% of the people who catch it. Then if we let it rip, to the population, um, you've got 300 million people in the United States. 1% of 300 million people is 3 million people. That's a lot of people. So what's happening is you're effectively, um, by allowing everybody to go out the doors, you're allowing them to kill 3 million people. They don't know which 3 million they are. And it's for any given person, it's unlikely to be them. But the stats will add up and 3 million excess deaths will occur. So in that case, aren't you being quite threatening by stepping outside your door? I, I guess, yeah, I would be, but, but I think that's um, too simplified of a picture to capture what's going on now because we know that there are, there are things you can do like washing your hands and keeping your distance and avoiding people of a particular demographic, old people, people with pre-existing conditions. Um, if you do all of those things, I think it's extremely unlikely uh, that you're going to kill that many people. If you just describe it as you did, where if you go out, simply go outside, you're effectively going to end up doing something that kills 3 million people. Well, I think that's a lot different. Well, I mean, it's, it's more subtle than that. You're contributing to an effect that kills people. I admit, it's, it's like death by a thousand cuts, right? So the, the condemned man uh, is tied to, the, to the, the gurney, and then each of a thousand people comes along and scratches him once. You know, no scratch kills him, but the thousand scratches does. And... In that case, you're contributing to a phenomenon, you're contributing to murder, but you're not a murderer. So it's kind of ethically challenging to kind of think, what are you when you deliver one scratch, knowing that there's going to be a thousand scratches that's going to lead to the death of this man. So even though I think you're not a murderer in that case, I think you're doing something comparable to murder. You're participating in something that is, that will sum to murder, and you're knowingly doing that. And I think the same thing happens should be said when you, when you behave irresponsibly in, in a situation like this, you know, you're in a position to know that 3 million people will die if we all just don't rein in our behavior at all. 
I'm not saying you killed the three million people, but you're knowingly contributing to a phenomenon that does that. So that's worth bearing in mind. Now, that's just to correct what I'm claiming is happening when you walk out the door. I thought you simplified it more than I liked when you said, by wandering out the door, you kill three million people. That's not what I mean. I mean, but you contribute to a phenomenon. But your, your counterpoint is, well, there are more moderate things that we can do in this particular case, um, such as, you know, avoiding visiting vulnerable people. Um, so in effect, uh, why can't we have a limited lockdown for vulnerable people? And I have to say, I think there's a lot to be said for that because, you know, one of, you, you, could, you could say, well, there, there aren't too many happy accidents when it comes to the coronavirus, but one thing that we can exploit is the fact that the people who are most vulnerable are also the people who are least economically necessary, very roughly speaking. That's the same. Many of the people who are most vulnerable are already retirees who can withdraw from the economy in terms of, of they can withdraw the, their labor from the economy very easily because they've already withdrawn it. Um, and so the, there will be no loss in terms of the, the labor supply. So if, if they just, if they lock down, if they were just the ones who lock down. Now, of course, it's not a perfect solution. There's also going to be people who have pre-existing conditions. You've got uh, bad asthma. I've got asthma. It's not so bad that I think I would count, but some people have bad asthma, even though they're, you know, they're only 25. Um, then yeah, the, the, you know, those people would be making an extraordinary sacrifice, but they're the ones that, that wouldn't be a redistribution of bad luck. That would just be, look, your bad luck is that you have this pre-existing condition. Now your bad luck is that you've got to not work. Um, I mean, you might, you, you might not like that because you might think, well, it's not redistributing bad luck. It's just piling bad luck upon one poor, one poor miserable individual who's, who seems to be getting the worst of everything. But setting that aside, I think there's a lot to be, we would do a lot less economic damage if we had a more targeted lockdown, I agree. And the economic damage I think is, I mean, some people seem to think it's, oh, how dare you think of money at a time like this? But no, money equates to lives. I mean, when, the, when you get an economic downturn, you're gonna get a loss of life as a consequence. Um, there will be a rise in the number of suicides. There will be a rise in the number, there will be a rise in crime, including a rise in murder and assault. Um, there'll, there'll be a, ri a rise in domestic abuse during a lockdown. I mean, I pity the poor people who were living with an abuser and their only relief was when he went to work. Um, you know, you're, go you're gonna get other kinds of rises just simply from the fact that we won't be able to afford as many healthcare workers. There won't be as much money in health insurance, there won't be as much money collected in tax. So welfare payments will be cut. Um, you know, there'll be all these negative effects that will, will lead to deaths. And so I think we should be very cautious about having a universal lockdown for very long because we're gonna end up um, killing more people than we save. Uh, I think that's a very real concern. And I think the very, the very natural way of having a more moderate policy is the one you suggested, which is that we restrict the lockdown to the vulnerable. So I'm very sympathetic with that as a practical measure. 
uh, yeah, sorry if I missed on individualism versus collectivism as a philosophical. What was that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that to me, I feel like that's a pragmatic concession. And, and as I've said to you many times before, I think of myself as a pragmatist. I, I don't really buy into any ideology. Um, I think ideologies are kind of scary and dangerous because they persuade people to apply one rule in every situation, um, even though the situations are often very different and that rule doesn't suit those situations. So I'm ultimately a pragmatist. Um, and I feel like this is, I'm making a pragmatic point here. I think I agree with you pragmatically that uh, a restrictive lockdown might be better, but I don't know if that bears very much on this whole idea of individualism versus um, communitarianism. Mm. Okay. Yeah, sorry if I mischaracterized you before when I was talking about walking out your door and killing 3 million people. Um, I do think that uh, statistics matter here. So, I mean, getting into what the numbers actually are, like there's a certain risk that you uh, get in a car accident every time you drive somewhere, a certain risk that you get killed or you kill somebody else, but we live with a certain amount of risk and reasonably so. I mean, we could avoid deaths by car accident by just never driving anywhere, but who wants to live in that kind of society? Right. So, um, yeah, quality of life is another consideration. So even if uh, well, a universal lockdown isn't killing more people than it's saving, even, even if it's saving more than it's killing, um, you might still say it's not worth it because of the, the cost to quality of life. And I think that's a real consideration. I mean, I think like the point that I made earlier, if, if you are somebody who's vulnerable, um, there's a good chance you're, um, a lot of the people who are vulnerable are, are close to the end of life. Um, and they may, they may not want to spend the last years that they have in lockdown, the last months that they have in lockdown. They may want to be out and about enjoying what little time they have left. So, and they, they may be willing to take a risk that they'll lose it, that they'll lose that time, rather than spend it in, uh, cooked up in, in what's effectively house arrest. I think that's a serious point. Um, it's one of the things that makes this whole thing very difficult. But to be fair to the strategy, I take it that the strategy is a temporary lockdown to buy us time. Uh, so the idea is we, we, we need to flatten the curve in a hurry and then that will give us enough time to hopefully get some treatment protocols in place that are a little bit more effective. Um, so, you know, somebody in, in uh, Dusseldorf discovers that a certain cocktail of antivirals is surprisingly effective against the coronavirus. Great, now we all know that. Maybe we can lift the lockdown. Uh, you know, so you're hoping for that. You're hoping for that breakthrough. I mean, I think waiting for a vaccine is, is pie in the sky. Um, the vaccine's going to take a year. We're not good at producing vaccines, quite frankly, that work. As far as I understand the situation, um, the best vaccines have been mostly opportunistic and luck that we discovered them. They're not some, it's, not, it's not a moment you can force. Um, the flu vaccines that we come up with every year are only kind of partially effective. 
And a partially effective vaccine might not be very much use. But even then, it's going to take a year to get this. We can't be in lockdown for a year. But a cocktail of treatments of existing antivirals that improve your chances, um, that's feasible. That might happen. Again, we're hoping for luck, but, it's, but uh, the dice are, uh, are loaded in our, better in our favor for that. So to go back to something that came up much earlier, I think, maybe the cure, if that means universal lockdown, is worse than the disease. It sounds like I, I'm sympathetic to that view. <clears throat> and uh, it sounds like you might be sympathetic to that as well. Yeah, I'm maybe. very concerned that the cure is going to be worse than the disease. I, I'm, I'm also kind of concerned. I, I think maybe, you know, a few weeks of lockdown, the cure might be better than the disease, but it's always, there's this kind of tendency, well, there's always another day of lockdown you can have. Um, as the weeks become months, it's def the cure is definitely going to be worse than the disease. I, don't, I think glo global economic ruin is something we should fear. Yeah. Um, another reason, you know, it's, you might actually get more deaths that I, that occurred to me by having this lockdown is, you know, people are, are uh, going to be able to afford less healthy food. Mm -hmm. If you have to eat worse, a worse diet. Oh, you're you poor. Miss the ways in which people are going to die earlier, like lost years. It's very easy to, to uh, put together a basketball score because um, the, quite generally, the fact that we have so many billion people in the world right now is because of industrialization, which in other words is saying, because we've built an economy that can sustain several billion people, that's why we have several billion people. You take that economy away and that population is going to nosedive. Um, so yes, I mean, just even not even mentioning the specifics, I mean, you're talking about um, healthy eating. Um, you might be lucky to be eating at all. If once economic collapse occurs, I mean, people don't, don't really appreciate it because we haven't suffered it in our lifetimes. But if the farmer goes to market and he can't cover his production costs because nobody's working because they're all on lockdown, then he doesn't have the money to invest for the next round, right? He doesn't have the money to go and buy the raw materials he needs, the seeds that he needs, the machinery that he needs, the petrochemicals that he needs to, fat, to, to, to do another round of farming, which means he simply doesn't do it, which means there's simply no food, right? That's how quickly it can happen. Uh, it's as quick as the, the farmer not getting full price at market because nobody's working. So, yeah, eating healthily, wow. Let's hope we're eating at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, like, if you don't eat healthy, your chances of getting some disease or cancer go up. And just that, you know, that could cut out years, decades of your life but you know to your point <laughs> yeah if, if you can't even eat at all I, obviously there are people in the world who are starving now so imagine if there's and the other thing is that people think oh the, the government will come in the government will come in and, and pay the farmer well yeah if the 
But where does the, the government get its money from? It gets its money from taxes, right? If nobody's paying taxes, it hasn't got any money. Oh, well, it can print money. Yes, it can print money. But the problem with that is that as it prints money, the money starts to lose its value. People realize that this, this isn't worth anything. If I can't spend this in the economy, right? That's going to lose value. If I, and if I, you know, if, I don't, if I believe that tomorrow it's going to be worth less than today, I'm not going to take it off of you, right? If you offer me five bucks or something, I'm, I'll, I'll stick with my item because this will be worth as much tomorrow as it's worth today. Your five bucks isn't going to be worth so much because they're printing it like crazy. Once people stop accepting money, it's no good giving the farmer a bunch of money. They'll take it to, to buy seeds and they'll say, no, you're all right. And everything just starts to break down, right? This is what happened in, in, um, in Germany before the Second World War. So we have to, we got to, this is a very careful, we, this is a very dangerous game that we're playing with lockdown and the economy. Um, it could be absolutely catastrophic if it's mishandled. I, now, I'm raising these possibilities not because I believe they're necessarily going to happen, but I believe they're things that we should be concerned about, right? We need to, we need to be very careful. Um, that's the point that I'm making. Uh, I've, I've heard that um, the, the Green New Deal, I've heard from Alex Epstein, a guy who I, I read a lot of, I think I have his book, The... Uh, Oh, the moral case for fossil fuels. Um, he, he's been talking about how the present crisis is just a preview. It's like a small sampling of what would happen to the world if we adopted the Green New Deal. Because you talk about farmers not having enough money to do their production. Well, fossil fuels make up a huge portion of like, I don't know what the percentage is, um, but a huge portion of the energy that's uh, used to create food as well as so much else. Alex, he calls uh, uh, energy or fossil fuels is the food of food. So we need fossil fuels to power the entire agricultural uh, industry. And if you, if you uh, get rid of fossil fuels or massively restrict them in the name of something like wind or solar, which are unreliable forms of energy, then that would cause billions, literally billions of people to die. So uh, I think it, maybe we are courting disaster if, if we go down the road that some people have. Well, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Depends what you mean by Green New Deal, I suppose. Um, I think any hasty, if we hastily try to get the world away from fossil fuels because we're concerned about climate change, then there's the danger that we're condemning um, billions of people to be destitute. Uh, and not just to, to be destitute for their natural lives, but um, for their children to be destitute and their grandchildren to be destitute. Um, because they will never enjoy what we've enjoyed, all of the spoils of industrialization, which includes, you know, industrial farming and ready, plentiful supply of food for everyone, and, um, industrial scale pharmaceuticals produced so everybody uh, has medicine. All of these things 
we will be denying to people who don't yet have them and we will be saying well you know forget it you're never going to get it and it's one of the reasons that i think that some of the the political um in general the political approach to climate change so far to me has been forlorn the idea that you're going to get a number of countries to sign onto protocols that condemn their own people to destitution for the, the long term it's just that's not going to happen and they might sign you, you might put enough pressure on them they might sign but they're not going to stick to it so I, I, we can't even stick to it in the united states you know you can sign something and then the next republican government gets in and, and they, they blow it off um so something better is required that's not to say i i have an obvious solution i mean i think i have some hopes for tech, technological breakthroughs um but that's a big area that we could discuss. um but certainly yeah i think i think a very flat-footed very blunt approach to removing the world from its addiction to fossil fuels is likely to cause the patient to go critical in an entirely different way uh, like any addiction you can't just stop and go cold turkey um it could it could backfire really badly but i understand the phrase green new deal to mean that we shift we use the government to shift uh investment towards green tech oh that's what you mean then uh that could be a really good thing because if the united states firstly for the united states if the united states becomes um soars ahead of the pack in terms of green tech then it's going to have an industry to sell to the rest of the world it's like silicon valley right now that is going to lead to wealth and prosperity for americans for the indefinite future but also just delivering this tech to other countries countries that we don't want them to use uranium because we don't we're worried that their leaders will will use it to develop a, a nuclear bomb um they don't have uh we don't want them to use um fossil fuels because we're worried about the effect on climate change well can we give them green tech is that a possibility for them to to have the kind of life that we have to have full bellies and to have medicine and yet not to be taking a toll upon uh the world's climate that seems like ultimately it's probably the only way through this mess so a green new deal might be a good thing i i think the uh i, I mean alex is arguing that there's there's really no credible path to using uh these alternative energy sources right now at least he's all open to there being freedom of competition and but uh, if there is, if right now we are co coerced to rely on these, the unreliables, wind and solar, as he calls them, um, it, it would be disaster. Now, maybe politically, it just, you know, it's, there's no way that those policies would pass right now. Um, but I think it's at least good to be aware of what would happen if they really did pass. Um, and I think that's that's the point he stresses. Like our shutting down of the economy now, if you consider all the catastrophic effects it's already have, you know, unprecedented unemployment, for instance, um, we would be in store for that and much more. Like 
on steroids if we if we were maybe we wouldn't but if we were to adopt the green deal green new deal at any time in the near future um yeah and so one, one point of comparison between the climate change discussion and the coronavirus discussion is that in both we're dealing with a lack of information and basing an awful lot of the discussion on forecasting particular computer models that you know are not super reliable um and also worst case scenarios and the media tends to run with worst case scenarios so yeah okay but there are two questions here. I mean, bringing in Epstein's point that you just that you just made. On the one hand, it's um, is he is he right that we're just simply not in a position to shift people over uh, to green tech in the near future? And then the second question is, given that he's right, let's just spot in that and assume that he's right. If we assume that he's right, then um, what should we do? And I'm not competent to answer the first question. I don't know whether he's right. I haven't read his case, and I'm sure that even if I read it, there's a lot of people who are um, going to take the opposite side. I'm not competent to discuss the climate change science. Um, I've heard some spooky predictions, but um, I've also wondered about I mean, those, those often seem to be the worst case scenarios. Um, some of the things about coastlines being flooded in a hundred years, uh, I don't know how alarmed to be about that. Uh, so on the one hand, I just think, well, over a hundred years, you know, that's just gonna be a real estate problem in the US. When somebody's got a house near the coast, the water levels are rising, price of the house goes down, they move, somebody moves in who, couldn't have afforded the house at its whole price, so willing to live with the fact that the water's rising, um, then they have to sell cheaper than they bought it, but at least they had many years living on the coast, which is what they wanted, um, and so on. Until one day, the, the house is worthless because the water's coming in. Uh, but so what? The people moved out long ago. It's not a human, it's not a humanitarian tragedy. So it's a, just a real estate trend. Um, and I think in, in a lot of developed countries, that's the way it's going to be. The concern, I think, the bigger concern is how is it going to be in less well-developed countries. But if your concern is for less well-developed countries, you also have to bear in mind how bad it's going to be if you take away the fossil fuels and don't allow them to industrialize. And that maybe the best way to, to um, deal with climate change, I'm just throwing this out there, I'm not an expert, is um, let them industrialize so that they can, they can change uh, this problem into a real estate problem, just like it is for us. Uh, I don't know. I'm worried that when I, when I say all that in a, in a row, I'm displaying my ignorance of all the nuances of this discussion. Um, but it certainly does frighten me, the idea of um, telling, you know, what, two-thirds of the world's population that they can't have an industrial revolution. That scares me. Uh, so I hope we're working towards something that, that can replace that. Yeah, just to uh, wrap up on this point, um, you, you used the term addiction. <laughs> you said addiction to fossil fuels, which I think it usually has the connotation of, you know, it's something unhealthy, but I, I think there's another way to look at it, which is, you know, it's, 
it's like being addicted to food. I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing that we use so much of it because it, it does so much for us in life. It, it allows us to live and enjoy the higher, high standard of living that we actually enjoy. So it's not something to be ashamed of. Yeah, I was thinking of it more as an acquired need. So it's a need that human life did not have originally, but it acquired. And it's a need now rather than a boon, because by using it, we've expanded our population to such a size that if we, if we can't come off it. We can't just say, okay, well, let's go back to the way it was. Nope. Well, I mean, we can, but billions of people would die. So we're kind of stuck. Um, we've, we've traded, we've traded away our freedom on that, on that score. Um, so that's what I mean by an addiction. We're no longer free to just not use it anymore. Um, now it's funny. I, I hear a lot of people talking about it. I, I guess I, this is where your, your question is coming from. A lot of people use the phrase addiction to fossil fuel and they, they mean it to have the negative connotation or solely the negative connotation. So that, this is, it's like a drug and the right thing to do is to get off the drug, right? That's the beginning and end of their argument. I am really using it in a, in a completely different way. Um, I'm saying uh, it is something we don't have the freedom to simply stop. Uh, and if we do, um, then like uh, a patient who is addicted to a substance, we could go into critical collapse just by withdrawing it. So we're no longer in a situation now where um, a simplistic solution will do. We would have to, as it were, wean ourselves off of it. And in the particular case of the world population, that means replacing it with something that is not causing the harms associated with fossil fuels, but does all the goods associated with fossil fuels. There may not be anything that acts as a complete replacement, but there may, and we hope there are, things that can act as a sufficient partial replacement. So it's unlikely, I mean, we might never get fighter jets that run on electricity and move as fast as oil-powered jets. We might never get, um, we might never be able to run a, a, an aircraft carrier on sunlight. I don't know. Maybe we can, I don't know. But, um, but hopefully we can, we can produce power stations that run on green energy, and that would at least produce electricity and heating um, and refrigeration for large populations. And then we can just use oil for things that where nothing else will do. One point Alex often makes is that um, we could go to use nuclear. That's actually the safest technology there is. And it's, part of the proof that it's really a sham that the, the environmentalist leaders, I guess, that their concern is not really um, about the environment is that we've got this clean, super clean technology of nuclear, but they oppose that too. So really what their agenda is, is they want to shut down civilization, industrial civilization. It's not an accident. Um, again, 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 I, I may display my appalling ignorance. Um, but it seems to me that claims that nuclear energy is, is the cleanest form of, um, of energy are 
those are true only given certain understandings of the terms involved, right? So what you get with nuclear energy is you get, you get less of a consistent dirty output than you get with fossil fuels. So if I've got a coal plant, it is pumping a poison into the air. Let's call it a poison. Technically, it's not exactly a poison, but who cares, right? It's, it's um, pumping something harmful into the air every day, day after day, year after day. But it's never that harmful on a given day, right? Whereas the nuclear power station is clean, 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 clean. But every day, it's like it flips a, uh, an internal, or rolls an internal die, right? And there's a, there's a very small chance that there'll be some calamitous event and it will go into um, meltdown. Or in the case of Chernobyl, you'll have an exploding reactor core. And oh my gosh, an exploding reactor core could kill a whole continent. So there's a very, very small chance of an apocalyptic event with a nuclear reactor. But until that day comes, it's really clean. I, I certainly don't have Alex's knowledge on this, but I do remember him saying, or maybe he had a guest on his show, Power Hour, uh, sometime that uh, he said it's actually physically impossible for a nuclear plant to explode just because of the physics of it. And there might be some other uh, reason like it. If, if and that is what they believed about Chernobyl. They believed it was physically impossible. And then it exploded. Was that because of the technology itself or was it because of like the way they were operating it? Um, it was a combination of both. So they had uh, a technology that um, was cheaper than it could have been and they'd cut certain corners. And then they had operators who misoperated it. They, they tried to put it, they actually were putting it through a test. And they were under pressure to make it past the test, which meant, I can't remember the details, but it meant it, it, it being, um, it had to be in a certain precarious state in case the, the idea was what if there was a, a power cut from the grid and there was no electricity? Uh, then that would cause a precarious situation in the reactor. And they had to prove that it would, it would last a certain amount of time before shutting down or going into meltdown. Uh, yeah, 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 details are, I'm forgetting all the details. But they pushed it and they broke all the safety protocols in order to make it pass this test. And between that and the fact that the tech was um, less than optimal, caused the reactor core to explode. Now they thought at the time it was impossible for it to explode. They thought, you know, the worst case scenario is a meltdown, not, not an explosion. Um, but they got, the, they, got, they got worse than what they thought was physically possible. Hmm. Now, so, so now the new view is, okay, if you make these corrections in the tech and in, in procedures, then an explosion isn't possible, right? Well, maybe it is, but it's worth bearing in mind that they thought that under the old paradigm as well. Hmm. So they, it's not just that they, they broke the protocols. It's that, I mean, even allowing for that, they still thought it was physically impossible yeah. that there could be some explosion and there was. Yeah. In fact, not only did they think it was physically impossible for it to happen in prospect, 
They even thought it hadn't happened after it happened because it's impossible. So they continued for, there was a delay in, in the appropriate reaction simply because they refused to believe the testimony of the people who said it had exploded. It's delusional. <laughs> I mean, there's a, I mean I, a lot of this information is coming, but I did double check it from the recent dramatization on HBO that I watched, which is amazing. It's amazing to Chernobyl, which I highly recommend. Um, but yeah, it, it set me off on a little thing where I started researching this and how much of the show was true and so on. So for a brief period, a few months ago, I was actually well-read on this stuff. And I've forgotten it all now. Um, but yeah, those, that's the gist of it. They, they, they thought it was impossible. I mean, just to give you a comparison case, um, they also thought 9-11 was, the, the building collapsing because of a fire was impossible. Those buildings had been built to not collapse in the case that there was a fire caused by a plane crashing into one of them by accident, they imagined, um, with all of its jet fuel. It's designed not to collapse. They thought it was impossible. There's no way the jet fuel could, could burn so hot as to melt steel. Um, well, turns out it doesn't have to melt the steel. It just has to soften it to the point that the weight of the structure above it passes a critical threshold and then the whole thing comes down. Um, again, physically impossible before it happened, and then it happened. Mm. So you, I'm skeptical of claims that um, a reactor course can't explode. I'm particularly skeptical when, in context, what we're talking about is letting countries that we regard as countries which are objectively um, poor uh, have nuclear energy. And then, and then we're going to hope that they, they uh, put in all these expensive protocols in the tech and insist upon all these expensive uh, protocols in, the, uh, in the, the way that it's managed. They're going to cut corners. They're poor. Um, so I think it, it's a risk. Interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll let Alex know about this. I mean, he, I know he's talked about Chernobyl, but... Um, I'd be interested to hear what he says or what he thinks about what we've just been talking about. So maybe I'll let him know. All right. Well, I think uh, this is maybe a good place. We covered pretty much everything I had that I wanted to. So maybe this is a good place to bring the episode to an end. Thanks right. very much for sharing all your thoughts. Thank you for inviting me and um, giving me an opportunity to uh, share my thoughts. Thank yeah. you. All right. Great to have you back. All right. Yeah. See you later. Okay. Bye.